doubt of course in anybody's mind, not only going to victory now, but this is a Tour de France victory salute, and it's come three days before the end of the Tour, Fignon now can ride the rest of the stages. Fignon has lost the Tour de France, right on the line as he comes over, 55 seconds is countdown, he has lost the Tour de France by 8 seconds, can you believe that? Will there be an immediate reaction after Alberto Contador? Because he's lost nearly five minutes in the Tour de France and it is only 12 kilometers to go. Right, Bob. This is what makes the Tour de France. What there's nothing more romantic than a return to French soil for the Tour de France and a Frenchman takes the day. Sprinting there, Benny was forced out of it a little bit. It is Val Van Aert who's gone up on the right for win number three. gonna ride it out until it's over, love Get you what you want and call me the plug Living every day like I already want Gone ahead, take the bag and run Welcome to the Outer Lines Perspectives on Pro Cycling, a retrospective on the careers in cycling. And today we're uh, very proud to have on board the voice of cycling, Phil Liggett, in from London. Phil, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'll, I'll laugh there, Steve, because you said retrospective. That's about right in my case, uh, just retro. Uh, I've been around quite a while, but I've, uh, I've had an incredible career of enjoying professional cycling. So if you looked at your career, started racing in 1961, won your first race, 15 Olympic Games, which I think a lot of people don't realize that part of your commentating uh, career, which is uh, immense. You've, uh, at least on American soil, uh, commentated for ABC, CBS, and NBC. So you hit the trifecta there. Well, don't you, forget ESPN. That'd and, be very offended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, international commissaire, uh, mm. you know, director uh, of the milk race for over 20 years. I mean, you've really done it all in your career. And people know you for commentating, but look at the body of your work. And can you sum it up, you know, in... Uh, in a minute or two of what that's been like? Well, I remember when I was a young cyclist and my first cycling club was the North Willow Velo, where I rapidly transferred into the New Brighton Cycling Club, which is not far away from Liverpool on the Willow Peninsula. And a girl came up to me and I was only just 18 and said, uh, you do talk a lot, she says, you should write a book. I said, there's no way you'll ever see me write a book, but of course I've written five books um, about the sport, not about myself. Uh, but I remember saying to her, she says, you've done so many things already. Well, I'd been a zookeeper. I was being trained as an accountant. And very soon I was going to go off cycling in Belgium. And soon after that, I became, um, I became a journalist. And I remember saying to her at the time, I was only 18. I said, well, I guess one day I'll be the most experienced pensioner in the world. And I think it's come to pass as far as cycling is concerned, because you're right. There was nobody around in my day to do these jobs. I mean, I was one of the first new international commissaires. Uh, I was lucky to do that because I was also uh, an organiser of the British Milk Race, which was the Tour of Britain. Uh, I did that for 22 years. They were very interested to get me onto this UCI course because it was good for the race. Uh, and, uh, and so I did. And 
then I became a journalist and I did all the aspects of journalism. I became a vice president of the International Organizers Association, which meant I sat on the same board as Félix Leviton, who was the organizer of the Tour de France itself. I treated him like God. Never dreamt that one day I'd go on his race for the next 48 years, but it happened. Yeah, um, I've done a little bit of everything to do with the sports and I've enjoyed every aspect of it, but it gave me a great grounding to understand, having been a cyclist when I was penalizing professional riders for penalties, I knew how they felt as well as how, how I would have felt. I mean, I've had a few words through the car window with professionals who got very upset with my decisions, but we've usually left the race as friends at the end of it. Now your wife, Trish, yeah. said one time, Phil's first love is cycling. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so <laughs> everything. Forget it. She never lets me forget it. Um, Trish understands, though, basically, because she was an athlete, too. She skated the Olympic Games in 1968, uh, the Winter Olympics, obviously, in France, in Grenoble, and uh, with her brother. In fact, they were the first brother and sister uh, team to ever skate for Great Britain at an Olympic Games. And so, yes, she's right. She knew that if she said yes to marry me, and come to think of it, I never did say yes for her to marry me. She said yes to me. Uh, then uh, I guess she knew she would always, I couldn't break the habit of a lifetime. I mean, how many times were I asked, who do you love me? Who do you love most, me or the bike, when I was courting women? You know, in the young, younger days, 18, 19, 20, I didn't get married till I was 27. And of course, I could never bring myself to say, well, it's you, because of course it was the bike. And um, I just love cycling. And it gave me my gateway to my whole career. And I'm, well, frankly, I'm so lucky. I'm just unbelievably lucky that my job, became, my hobby became my job. And I met some great people. So from the start of your career to 2020, I'm guessing you're in London for the first time in 25 <laughs> years over the holidays here. The whole year has been different, including the Tour de France. How do you sum up 2020 for Phil Liggett? It's been a year like never before, that's for sure. I mean, uh, when we, we flew on our normal routine trip to Australia in January, all went off great, tore down under, it was fantastic, good race. Flew back to London, two weeks in London, off we flew to South Africa for our a brief holiday before I started working on the classics like Paris-Roubaix. And while we're there, COVID hits the fan big time. All of a sudden, we can't leave South Africa, shut down by the president of South Africa, all airspace closed. Uh, they waived all our visas for overstay. Doesn't matter, you're stuck here, mate. Uh, in the end, the British government got us out on a, on a special flight. And then I land in Britain in, in the end of May, 1st of June, when I should have been back on the 4th of, of April. Paris-Roubaix had already gone to the wall, uh, rescheduled for October, never happened. Uh, the Tour de France was now not going to happen in the month of July. My Olympics was gone. All the reasons I was wanting to get back to England for, all gone. And so I spent the whole of uh, June and July and just into September just feeling life has just left me. I'm just walking around doing things in the house. I did a bit of cycling, um, but it was so different. And then the UCI did a brilliant job, I have to say, with the help of everybody, the organisers of the big grand tours, the governments of, of the federal governments and the national local governments, they wanted the sport to go forward. France led the way with the Tour de France and off we went again. 
even to just before the tour started, I never thought it was going to happen. I really did not. I was hardly doing any research, although really, I don't have to after 47 years and 48 years. And then the decision was taken by NBC to, uh, if they couldn't at such late notice get the team into, into France. Well, frankly, the Americans couldn't get into France, full stop. I could. And so they decided to uh, do it from home. So I did it from London, from a TV studio in London. Bob Rowe, my co-commentator, did it from Stamford, Connecticut, which is the home of NBC. All the production team were out in Stamford and the, and the anchor, Paul Burmeister. We had uh, a couple of reporters in France on motorbikes and, uh, and it worked like magic. Unfortunately, it worked rather too well because they got the best viewing figures for 10 years or more. And uh, I suspect because COVID is still so unstable that we'll be back in the same studios in, in July for the Tour de France. And of course, at the moment, assuming it will happen in July, but I hope it does. And then after the July race was finished, I've just been here ever since in my home in London. And you're right, I've never been uh, in London, in the UK, in the month of November and most of December for over 25 years. I've always been in Africa, uh, doing my other love, which is to try and help save the rhinos. And we have a very remote house there, which is just fantastic with the animals. And we have a lot of different set of people. Uh, 50 years of the Tour de France, or in a couple of years, it'll be 50 years on the Tour de France. I might not make it, of course. <laughs> and uh, you've had some important characters uh, in your career yeah. revolving around the Tour de France. Uh, David Saunders, Paul Sherwin. Uh, talk a little bit about their influence on you on a personal level and then on a professional level. Well, David was, uh, as it turned out to be, a man that would set my career up in lights because uh, David, I became friends with David because as organizer of the British Milk Race, I was employing him as the speaker of the tour along with David Duffield. And uh, the two of them were great. The crowds loved them and they were commentating on the ground. Then we're away from the milk race. I was traveling the circuit as a journalist reporting the big bike races and David usually was working on the microphone. We blended a friendship over the years. Uh, and then in 1972, he said to me, um, next year, I'm going to cover the Tour de France every day from France for independent television in Britain. He says, would I like to go? And uh, there'll be no fee involved, but would I be his driver? And he'd cover my expenses. <laughs> I said, you must be joking. I'm in. Because the Tour de France always finishes, always starts and finishes approximately a month after my milk race is over and done with. So July for me was free. I didn't start organizing the next milk race till the August or September. So I went on the first tour with him. We had a laugh a minute. We'd, neither of us had done a tour. I'd never been to the tour ever. David had flew in and flew out just to do a TV show. He'd never been on it like we were covering it. Driving the tour was like driving a car race up and down the mountains of the riders, chasing you down those herping bins, whistling at you to get out of the way. It was something out of this world. And of course, in those days, the noise when you went in the press room with the clacking of the typewriters, 800 press all banging on a typewriter, it was deafening. And uh, all the phones at the, the girls, we have to go and ask for calls to London, wait 90 minutes for the call to come back to you. These were the old days. And um, when the Colombians arrived there, 
to report the likes of Lucho Herrera and Fabio Parra. They brought an entourage to die for. They were making all the programs directly back to Bogota on a radio cassette, including putting the commercials on the cassette, then jumping out the cars and slapping the phone on the handset of a telephone, pumping in the coins to keep the line live to Bogota and play the whole program down the line. It was amazing. And those times were very special on the Tour de France. The race itself was dominated most years by Eddie Merckx, of course, who, who was the main reason I didn't turn pro because I could never beat him when he was an amateur. And uh, Eddie and I are pretty good friends now, and I've often told him that story about why I never turned professional. And I remember him looking at me up and down. He said, you beat me. And then just, huh, <laughs> you know, Eddie was pretty special. Anyway, so the, with David, um, I was doing this job of being his driver from 73. And then on, in 1978, in the March of 78, we were doing our regular trip to Paris-Nice, which we also did by car, similar manner to the tour. And halfway through the race, David got a phone call from ITV saying, David, we want you to come back to England for this Saturday, if you can. We want you to, um, to commentate on a programme called Superstars. Now, Superstars was the biggest watch programme. It's all the old stars coming back and doing the thing. And, uh, and it was very well watched. And David, it was a big shot for David. This was a big leg up for David now as a commentator. And so he, he said to me, he said, Phil, do me a favour. I said, what's that, Dave? He said, would you like to bring the car back on Sunday? I said, why, where are you going? He said, oh, I need to go to London to do this programme. He said, and would I write his story for the newspaper, which he was doing every day under his name? And I said, David is fantastic. Get out of here. And he flew away and he was left me on the on Paris Nice for the next three days where I drove the car, obviously. And I wrote the story for him as well as my own newspaper. And then at the end of the race, as always, dro drove through the night back to Calais, which is a long drive, 12 hours, and then jumped the boat, got back home. When I got back home, I rang David up and he said, where are you? I said, I'm back home, Dave. He said, you stupid boy. He said, you could have been killed driving all that way after a full day's work. I said, David, it's fine. No problems. I said, now I need to give you the car back because it wasn't our car. It was a company car from the manufacturers, actually. So he said, well, OK, let me meet you at King's Cross. So I drove to King's Cross and then it's very simple to get on the train and go home. He was so grateful for what I'd done for him because the job had gone down so well, too. So he... His future was growing fast. He was only in his mid-40s. Anyway, by the time I got home, his wife was on the answer phone saying, Phil, you must sit down because David is dead. I froze. I looked at the phone. I looked at Maggie's voicemail. And I called her back. And she told me that he'd been killed in the car uh, two hours after I'd passed it back to him. A bizarre accident that was never explained. Three weeks later, the very same point, a police car crashed. But this, the, the police were lucky, they hit nothing. David hit a telegraph pole or a lamppost or something and he fractured his skull. Um, they, they hit nothing and they couldn't explain why the car spun round at that same point on the Thames embankment. So it went down in the end, I think, to, to winds. But, but the fact was, David was gone. I had to pull myself together that day because then the newspapers and people started, radio started ringing me, asking me to do obituaries about David. And so by the end of that day, I was physically exhausted, mentally blown and in tears because I lost a great guy. 
within three days, ITV called me and they said, Phil, we'd like you to consider doing David's job because there was never enough money for two of you. We think you've got the ability and we know David would be really pleased if you honoured him by taking the job. If you say yes, we don't advertise the, the position. I said, look, it was, I would never have applied for this job. They said, we know, that's why we're asking you. So I um, said, okay, well, if you think I can do it, I'll give it a go. And so they said, well, you're going to learn the hard way because in three weeks time, we're broadcasting a professional race from uh, Crystal Palace in London. And well, I knew that because I was the organizer of the race. I was bringing 88, the biggest professional field ever to Britain outside of a world championship. I'd got Bernard Tevenet, then two times winner of the tour. I had brought um, Jan Ross, Jerry Kenetman, who was the world champion. Uh, and one man riding his very first professional race in Britain, Paul Sherman. That was his first time back as a full pro in his Fiat colours in 1978. So I didn't think I did a great job on the show, but uh, they seemed to like what happened. And I worked them for the next 25 years. When I read in a British newspaper that Paul Sherwin was considering retirement at the end of the year, uh, and but will probably race in Britain for two final years, uh, that on the the, the Paris where David had all those years ago been with me, I was at the uh, finish line on the Promenade des Anglais before the riders got the Col d'Ez for the final time trial, and Paul came in in the bunch sprint, so I went and grabbed him. I said, "Hey," I said, Are "You packing in?" And this was 1986. And he said, um, yeah, I probably am packing in as far as European racing is concerned, but I think I'm doing two more years in Britain, but I can't tell you who for. I said, okay. I said, well, how do you fancy working with me on television if I can fix it? And he said, uh, yeah, I'll give it a go. That's, that's poor, typical, you know. I knew he'd be good because he knew the riders inside out and personally. And so, and he was very popular with the riders, he spoke the language fluently and, and the, his humor came through even in the French language. And so I, uh, I said, okay, well, I'll let you know. Anyway, I said, but do me a favor, whoever you're signing for next year, just um, write a clause in the contract saying that you don't want any cycle races during the month of July. I said, because if you come for me on the tour in July, I'm, I'm sure whoever you've got, it won't be a problem. We'll get you in some publicity shirt when you're in vision so that uh, your sponsor won't lose out. Well, about a week, month later, I can't remember, I had a phone call in London at my house from a guy called uh, George Shaw. I knew George. He was the boss behind the rally team at the time. I said, how are you, George? He said, I'm fine. He said, listen, I've got this very strange request from Paul Sherwin. I said, it's you. You must be the sponsor. Yes, he said. I said, well, Paul wouldn't tell me. And so he said, well, he said he wants not, he doesn't want to race in July. I said, that's right. I said, I told him to put it in, George, because look, when you finish with him in a couple of years, he's got to have some future. And so if he gets into television, that's his future. And, uh, and look, ITV, I know we'll let you have a little rally motif on, on top of your working shirt, it won't be a problem. Look, he said, that's fine. Now I understand, that's all I wanted to know. I couldn't understand the request. He said, that's fine, done. And that's what happened every July for the next two years. And Paul won two British titles 
he won the road race first, uh, criterion first, then the road race second in his two seasons with George. And every July, Paul brought his bike on the Tour de France. And instead of riding me, driving him to the hotels, when we finished on the press at night, he got the bike and he rode to the hotels. Because as soon as the tour finished, he was in Scotland riding the Tour of Britain with all the top World Tour pros, although they weren't called World Tour at the time. And do it, we put a mic on him. And the poor bugger had to, had to really work hard to speak and hold on to back wheels of the bike riders when they're full on. Uh, but it worked it, and we did it. And uh, I, I think I think that uh, Rally Banana was the team. I think they got better publicity by letting Paul have those couple of weeks with us. And then we got him into the shows as well as a bike rider after that. So that was the, that was our, that was it. Paul and I then stayed together for the next 33 years. And as we all know, sadly, he died in 2018. What was the magic of uh, Paul Sherwin as a commentator? <laughs> what was the magic of him? personally outside the commentating box well the basic thing is the magic of paul is the very same reason that he was taken onto the it pro teams which is laradut and fiat was it only two teams he ever rode for over 10 years and then of course rally banana in britain was he he never had bad morale he was always what's up with you get on out there you've only got a cut on your arm forget it you'll be fine see the doctor when you get back that was his attitude to life, hard as nails. Uh, any pro will tell you, oh yeah, we remember him. He never wore any gloves when it was minus one because he had hands like meat hooks and he would not wear any fingerless mitts. They're for pansies, he said. They, they, it's not cold. And he was hard, but he would make the guys laugh. So in the pro races, in the pro, if there was a problem on the Tour de France uh, with a rider, say he crashed, all his morale was getting low because his form wasn't there. He used to put Paul in that room. And because Paul spoke his language, they would really be close together. And Paul would discuss it with him and bring him back round so that next day he wants to ride the tour again. His morale was back up at the top. And that's why Paul got, ne he never asked for a contract. He never looked for a contract. He made the decision to stop. Um, so he knew where he was going and it made a lot of friends on the way. And even to this day, a lot of his old teammates still contact me because they always saw me with Paul, uh, like Alain Bondou, who was twice a World Pursuit champion. Alan and I, Alan was Paul's best man at his wedding, and we've remained friends ever since. I see him all the time when I'm in France. And so did Paul, always looked him up whenever we were near Lille, which is where Alan lives. And so that was the difference, Paul. Paul was a great morale booster. And so when he worked with me, same applied. Uh, we never had a bad word to say. We never tripped over each other in commentary. Uh, if he wanted to say something, he put his hand up like that while I'm talking. And if I wanted to say something, I'd just grab his knee. And he'd know straight away it was his turn. Um, and we just, we just did, we covered each other's backs without a problem. We, we, just, we just did it. And we didn't, we went to dinner together. Whichever race we were on, be it the Amgen Tour of California, the old Tour Dupont, we used to walk automatically down the corridor at the same time, although we're in separate rooms. And we'd just say, where are we eating tonight? And we'd go, and we'd always eat together. Um, and we always had stories. We, we made each other laugh as if we were first night lovers, honestly. We just told different jokes to each other. And we discussed the race, of course. And um, we used to, I, I remember, um, 
walking into, it was a theatre in Seattle, and there was 800 people in the theatre. As we were walking down to a round of applause, Paul whispered in me, what are we going to talk about? And I said to Paul, I said, don't worry, when you sit down, we'll find out. And once we, we finished up that night with a standing ovation because one story triggered another and we talked incessantly for three and a half hours. It was never difficult with Paul. That was one of the things, having been around both of you at some of those presentations, be it the Tour of California, Tour de Pont, mm-hmm. USA Pro Challenge when that was going on, there was that instantaneous rapport mm-hmm. without a beat. Not a ah, not a oh, it was just one fed off another. And it seemed like a lot of that was impromptu. It wasn't planned. It was just organic. It was. um, Well, it most certainly was. Uh, We would go into the, the only time that we were sort of apart is Paul liked to do his pre-race notes sat in this little outside broadcast caravan type thing. And I always like to go and sit in the commentary position where the cameras are and I just sit there quietly making notes and Paul as you know became the veritable expert on chateau and castles and towns so he researched that a lot in the in the later years um, so that races like when we're in California he found out a lot of info about the race route and what we were going to pass um, and made a lot of notes and sometimes he said some of the most outlandish things that facts that I would never heard of and I'll look at him and go like this but I couldn't speak to him because we were on air and I just, and he just he did get even more into it then, you know. And because the mail we got was incredible about uh, the knowledge of Paul Sherwin and stuff like that. I always used to say to Paul when we were on the Tour de France, look, if ever you don't know who lived in the chateau, just say it was Louis the Fourteenth, because that guy lived everywhere. And that always got a laugh. I, I told that to uh, Christian Proudhon once on, on the Tour de France, and he just fell about laughing. Yeah, we, we, we became two. The only time you ever see Paul really serious because actually Paul was quite nervous you know sometimes I'd see his hand to be shaking like this because he's he's getting very tense when he's working and I, I'd, I'd just calm him down um, because he knew his sport inside out and you just got to get your facts there and and I would say to him sometimes when he came off I said I used to say Paul you were bloody good today everything you wanted to say I know you said it you really nailed it we got the viewers to look where we wanted them to look and follow that rider to the winning line. And, uh, and he would he'd just say thanks. You know, he, I know he appreciated that. Uh, and then we'd just go to our room, quick swoosh. We'd suddenly walk together out the door, down to the restaurant, uh, and we'd just laugh our way through the evening. People would come by, maybe sit with us or whatever. But yeah, and then we new day, next day. So arguably commentating especially the tour de france over three weeks maybe the toughest job as an announcer in the profession it's a marathon uh both on the air and off noting that you're traveling 200 kilometers to the next stop take us inside the mind of phil liggett for five hours during Mm -hmm. a tour stage it's it's got to be a lot uh mental demands on something like that it is especially as we Paul and I used to insist we had our own car, uh, and Paul likes to drive. He hates to be a passenger. In fact, he's a very bad passenger. Doesn't trust anybody else driving, least of all me. And uh, and he was a damn good driver. He could push that car really hard because you have to drive fast, and you have to be able to pull it out of 
slides and things. Uh, they were the early tours, because Paul's first tour with me was 1978, no, 1986 or seven. Uh, and he was absolutely brilliant to have as my driver. It took all the pressure off me. The, there are long days, because our day, as the tour became more and more popular and more and more coverage was demanded by the fans and the organiser were prepared to give more and more pictures to us, then we no longer could do the same race route on the same day as the tour. So all that running for the Le Mans type start and jumping in your car before the riders go past it, they were, that was all gone. Now we had to be at the finish line the night before that the riders come in. So once the tour leaves the start line in whichever town it's in at the beginning, Grand Depart, uh, we never spoke to a rider again until Paris. Sure, we have reporting teams uh, they're called the start line team uh, who would get all the information on the morning and quickly satellite it to us and were the finish line team and but we never saw these riders again these we used to used to ask it in Paris if we've been on the Tour de France all the way and I used to say yeah you cheeky sod we've been here since of course we have we just don't see you we're on a different day then I explained how we did it and so we arrive at the start town of say stage three at the end of stage two we drive from stage two finish to wherever stage three is finishing. So we miss out the start area of stage three, drive around to the end line stage, and that can be two or 300 kilometers away, including maybe a travel from the finish of stage two to the start of stage three. It can often be 300 kilometers to drive uh, straight after the race is finished on stage two. So when we get there, we find our hotel. Thankfully, and I say this with the greatest of pleasure, we have a fantastic team who set up our hotels. They're based in uh, Normandy and oh, they're brilliant. And so they, they find us lovely hotels. That's all we ask for, a hotel with a great bed because uh, we're only in it for seven hours and, and off we go again. So we get there, we have dinner, we go to bed. Then we're up at 6.30, have breakfast, quick chat uh, with the producers, always in the same hotel, plan of the day, out the hotel, drive to wherever the start is. We're normally only a few kilometers away, maybe 10, 15 miles, and we're on the, and then we're in position. So we're usually in position uh, at nine o'clock in the morning, by which time all the rigging crews got the whole place set up. They're just putting a few plugs in, but basically all our rooms are ready and commentary position is ready and we're all set to go. Then Paul and I research, we go and tell a few jokes to the crew because uh, they always, you know, after a few weeks, they're getting stressed too. They're not even seeing a window looking outside because they're in that box from six in the morning till five at night. And uh, so we go and tell them a few jokes and then they usually bet on the riders amongst themselves. So they're always asking us for tips, who's gonna win and tell them, hopefully. And then we go and do our job. We start work usually between 11 and two o'clock in the day and take it to the finish line. And you're right, it could be a five hour commentary. Um, personally, I don't think the sport does itself a favor by broadcasting it the whole day of the cycle race because it looks a little bit drab in the middle unless, of course, it's a high mountain race, then it's a different race. But we do, and uh, you're gonna have plenty of stories. Um, we're never short of stories, not after 40, 40 years on the, on the tour. And Paul was never short of stories. His stories were real stories escapades in the peloton when he was a bike rider and uh, in the formative years of me and Paul and we, we got lots of those stories coming out of him with, with his mates 
um, and and things like that. And then after that happens, after we've we've done the uh, the day's work, it's into the car. Usually about an hour afterwards. Sometimes there's a closing piece of the program to do, to add on, get ready for the next day. In the car, we're gone, and we're heading to the next finish line, which can be another 300 kilometres. But you won't believe it's got, in my mind, easier than it was in the first 20 years. I got very stressed in the first 20 years because it seemed to be an awful lot to do. But then I did write stories and I did have to write scripts for CBS and I did have to do live commentary for ITV and the world feed. So it was a very full day. I used to write stories when I was flying from venues at CBS when they were tight, used to give me a helicopter. And I would be typing in the helicopter before that chopper landed. It's only a 10 or 15 minute flight to a car park to do voice onto tape for CBS in America. I'd written a five or 600 word story on my knee, used to rip it and, I, and on a typewriter. I used to rip the script out of the typewriter. Sharon would be there, he'd driven the car back, I'd flown in. I used to give him the newspaper and say, just read that story to the London newspaper and uh, make sure they get it right. And then, then I would go into a room and start work until midnight doing script writing for the CBS show. It was it was tough in those days, but it got easier and easier. And uh, now, of course, I only do it for NBC. So it's uh, I don't let NBC know, but it's a piece of cake now. Uh, and you've uh, worked and you've worked with David Michaels. Uh, yes, a lot of the American broad, broadcasting. Uh, tell us that experience between uh, you know producer and, well, and commentator. David was the the guy that brought me into American television. Uh, I didn't know, of, I was no ambition to work in American television because I was very happy with ITV. Uh, and I was fairly young in the relationship with ITV. I'd be about, be about, I'd been working probably with ITV seven years. And then American TV thought the Tour de France would make a great show. Not live, they were doing packages. We won a list of Emmys as long as you are. The production was fantastic. I worked with John Tesh writing scripts in all strange places. And uh, the pressure was enormous, enormous. Uh, I would, they would fly me from wherever the tour was to Paris where they were making the show. I'd work through the night writing scripts and they'd have either a train ticket or a plane ticket, whichever one I'd made the schedule for, and got me back to the race to start the race again. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, but David Michaels was the executive producer of that show. And one day he came up to me and said, hey, you got to work for me. I said, what do you mean? He said, man, you're, you're what we want on our show. Uh, we just can't find anybody in the States to do the job like you can do it. He said, I'm listening to you, Commentator. We need you. I said, look, I owe a big favour to ITV because since the days of David Saunders. And um, if they say I can work for you, I'm in. Um, otherwise I can't be. So he went to ITV and said, I, I need to use Phil as well. And they said, well, as long as we don't lose him, you can use him. So all of a sudden I'm working for two networks in the world, NBC, uh, CBS and, and ITV. Uh, and then it spread from that like wildfire, of course, then television New Zealand, um, I can't think of the station now, Australian television, they all came on the bandwagon and all of a sudden they're all putting the plugs in the same commentary. Um, it became, but CBS were different. I was writing a different show for CBS. And so I wasn't commentating. They, they weren't doing live stuff. They weren't on, on their shows. They didn't even tell you who won the stages. 
they told you a story of the Tour de France and they got some great storylines. John Tesh was a pretty hot writer um, and music. He, he wrote all the music for the show and everything. And, and David knew exactly what he wanted. And over, over my reign with, uh, if you call it a reign, my period with NBC, uh, David became the producer with NBC. And I, I didn't work for NBC, although they asked me and I couldn't do it at the Olympic Games. Uh, but David was always at the Olympic Games producing cycling and gymnastics usually. And so I would see them there and we'd have long chats, but I, I wasn't working for NBC. Um, and in the end, of course, I, Paul became the commentator for NBC at the Olympics. And uh, it was a very incestuous world and we enjoyed it very, very much. And David was a great guy. And, uh, and I owe all my, all my American broadcasting to David introducing me to it. And, and to the winter sports. And he, one day he rang me up at my home he said, hey, we've got this plan. So what's that, David? We want you to do the Winter Olympics for us. So Winter Olympics? This was 1992 in Albeville, in France. I said, uh, I only know speed skating. I'll do that because of my wife. She was a speed skater. No, no, no. He said, we've got Eric Hyden for that. I thought, oh, well, Eric's got a better rap than me for doing that. I said, well, I don't know anything else. He says, good. He said, you can learn with the American audience. I said, oh, okay, so what, what do you want me to do? He said, well, we've got uh, uh, ski jumping and biathlon, we need commentators for, but we're fixed up with the ski jumping uh, with a guy who was an auto race caller. I don't know his name, whoever he was. And he said, so we thought we'd give you a shot at doing Nordic combined and the cross country ski racing. I said, okay, so it wasn't, those two sports are like calling bike races. Nordic combined is a fabulous race, one-on-one. -on -one. I can accommodate on guys racing against each other and I can soon learn their names and facts. And uh, oh, I, I was voted the best commentator, I think, at, uh, after the session of the first Olympics. It was ridiculous. I knew nothing, but I was able to make it sound good. David said, hey, we've got a problem with ski jumping. You're going to have to do it as well. I said, David, I've done nothing on ski jumping. You'll be fine. We'll get you some research as well. Right. He said, the only problem is it's back in London when you're putting the voice down. I said, what? He said, so you'll have to go to London, put the voice on and come back here. Right. So I drove all the way across three countries back to Munich, jumped on the airplane to London, worked in the studio, put the voice on and flew back. When I came out of the airport, I couldn't find my car because they'd had a big dumping of snow and it was covered up. Anyway, I battled my way through the snow, backed the car out. It looked like Father Christmas with a big hat on the top of the car and drove back across three countries, back to Valdi Fiemi, picked up the commentary again on the, the final race of the games of any worlds is uh, the 50 kilometer cross country ski race. So I did that. Went back, I was voicing that on site. So I went back to London and it was all over. And a week or so later, I don't know how long it was, David rang up, he says, he said, everything was great. He says, well, we've taken the decision. You were better on ski jumping. I said, no. And that was the one that I knew nothing about. And so I became the ski jumping commentator for the next five Winter Olympics. And, uh, and, and I made real friends with the ski racers. The ski jumpers are mad, totally mad. You used to find them in the coffee shop or the cafe at the bottom of the ski jump after they jumped 
drinking vodka or any what looked like a white fire water with a dead snake in the middle of it and they're just drinking it these boys were crazy but they were fantastic and the americans had a great bunch of ski jumpers too and that i took them out uh, for lunch to learn more about the ski jumping and techniques and their training and they said to me but you're the guy that knows cycling i said yeah i am yeah but i said i've got to learn about ski jumping lads they said oh no no tell us about greg lamont uh, we'll, we, the ski jump is easy. We'll tell you about the waxing and all that rubbish. We'll tell you, come and see us training, Steamboat Springs. We'll tell you all there. So I had a pretty expensive lunch for the whole team and I learned nothing except I told them story after story of Greg Lamond and the Tour de France. Um, but they were great people. And in fact, um, I brought quite a few of them onto the Tour de France uh, in the years to follow because they would be based in the Alps or somewhere. And they used to drop me a note and say, Phil, any chance you can get us on the tour? I say, sure, come on over. And we used to take him on the tour. Yeah, in 2002, I was working for the US Olympic Committee. Yeah. I'm in the hotel. I hear this booming voice across the hallway from it. It was Phil Liggett. <laughs> and you were talk, talking back to Australia about ski jumping at that time. Yeah. Well, that would be right. And, uh, I think I worked with Channel 9 uh, in, in Salt Lake City. Um, and that was when, uh, in fact, we did. Uh, they did, they, the ski jumping was down at Park City, wasn't it? That's right. And I had to move down there because um, it was a bit, a bit dicey getting there by car on time in the cold weather. I remember seeing my first time I'd ever seen a huge moose standing under the ski jump. And he was massive with his horns right there, you know. And I thought, oh my God. Uh, apparently, that's where he was always. And, he, and somebody built a ski jump right where he always stood. So uh, he was harmless pretty much. And I, I did, I, re, I reported the ski jumping and uh, amazingly, the number of bike riders who live in that area and who also take part in winter sports and Jim Okovich is no exception. I think Jim has a house there now. He does, Mike Plant has a house, Eric Hyden has a house. So all well, these uh, fantastic books guy. that, yeah. so let me, let me take the ski jumping, pivot to uh, Primoz Rolich, yeah. uh, Roglic and uh, the epic battle uh, this year. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on, on what became a really phenomenal tour It's a France. natural link, isn't it? Because he was a junior world ski jump champion. Um, I never commentated on him as a ski jumper because he crashed soon after he won that title as a junior quite badly. And that was the end of his ski jumping career. So he took up riding a bike. That was bad news for the cyclists because the guy is very, very good. Um, pretty much uh, this year has been simply fantastic and the Grand Tours, all three of them were won by just seconds, unheard of in any one season, all three Grand Tours because that's the way the bike races are ridden these days but he had a great team around him. Uh, he wasn't totally infallible because you could see there were moments when he did crack but he knew how to suffer and he limited his losses and, and he, he won his second Tour of Spain and he finished second in the Tour de France. So, yeah, the guy is very special and brought a breath of fresh air, frankly, to the sport of cycling, new faces, taking on the big teams like Ineos and, and beating them. And so I was very pleased and I like him a lot. And he's not young, but he seems to be a young face to us in the sport, but he's not certainly not young now, he's heading up 30. But the youngsters that were coming up behind him, we've, we saw Bernal, we've seen Pogaccia, um, 
Evanapol, who sadly had a bad crash in, in Lombardia, but he'll be back next year. And then there's a whole host of youngsters come through now. Um, we have a new new situation in the world of cycling now. In fact, if I was over 30 years of age now, I'd be freaking because I think uh, I'm not going to be competitive against these kids. They are magic. Um, Chris Froome's got a big fight on his hands next year. And I personally like Chris very much, but big fight on his hands too live up to his reputation in the, with his new team next year. We gon' ride it out until it's over, love. Get you what you want and call me the plug. Living every day like I already want. Gone ahead, take the bag and run. Gonna ride it out until it's over, love. Get you what you want and call me the plug.